Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Pastor Life Podcast from Pinnacle Leadership Associates. I'm David Brown. I'm a Pinnacle Associate, and I am the founding pastor of The Welcome Table in Rock Hill, South Carolina. And I'm Rhonda Blevins, Pinnacle Associate and pastor of Chapel by the Sea in Clearwater Beach, Florida. And we're back to pick up our Courageous Conversation series here in Season 3 of Pastor Life Podcast. And maybe you noticed that we didn't drop an episode in the feed the last few weeks. Rhonda, I imagine you noticed that. Oh, I noticed. I noticed. And in fact, someone said they thought we were done with Season 3. We're not. There are still more Courageous Conversations to have. So should we talk about why we took an unexpected break in the middle of Season 3? Yeah, I guess we should talk about it. I mean, you and I haven't really talked about it. It just sort of happened, right? It just sort of happened. Uh, we try to record our our podcast episodes um, as close to real time as possible. So we don't have a whole season recorded and ready to launch like maybe your favorite Netflix series. Uh, so we record along the way and hopefully our episodes are more timely. But what that means is that life sometimes gets in the way of our plans. Right. And... As we were catching up just a few minutes ago before we hit the record button, I mean, I think both of us are feeling what maybe pastors across the land are feeling these days. Uh, Some of that sense of overwhelmedness or exhaustion. I mean, have we really been dealing with COVID for going on two years now? Yeah, I mean, yeah. So it was really intense initially with COVID as we were trying to figure out how to take our churches virtual and do the hybrid church. And now we have both hybrid church, um, online church and in-person church that we're still managing and trying our, you know, many of us trying our best, pouring a lot of energy into the local church um, just to try to get back the energy that we had at one time, right? And um, and so, yeah, I think if my Twitter feed is any indication, pastors out there are, are tired and probably a lot of other professions too, um, but I think a lot of us are feeling it. Yeah, I think people in general are tired. You know, obviously, there are increased cases of depression and anxiety that are going on out there in people's lives. And You know, the pandemic is just a layer on top of all the other things that go on in life, whether that's relationship struggles, whether that's, you know, a congregation I've been uh, connected with who uh, had a a fire in their sanctuary, um, whether that's just the the quote unquote normal life of pastoring a congregation. You know, you lay on top of that COVID, you lay on top of that all the decision fatigue and trying to keep things balanced in a new context. And it it, it just is overwhelming, I, I think, for pastors and, and maybe for podcasters too. Yeah, maybe. Well, with that, should we shift our focus to the courageous conversation at hand today? I think we should. I think we should. And you had a great interview for us uh, today. So Rhonda, why don't you dive into uh, race and how does race play in or layer on top of some of the conversations we have as churches? Or tell us a little bit about what you learned in the interview. Yeah. So, oh my goodness, what a great time I, I had interviewing Reverend Dr. Kevin Cosby and Reverend Jason Crosby. 
And I only Cosby got there two, and yeah, Cosby. I only got their two now, names on, confused once during the interview. <laughs> um, Dr. Cosby is the president of Simmons College of Kentucky, which is um, one of our historical black colleges and universities. Um, he's also the pastor of St. Stephen's Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Jason Cosby is the pastor of Crescent Hill Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. And when I was in Louisville, I had the honor and the privilege and the opportunity to sit at table with both of them and some others as well. And several of us white pastors were under the tutelage, let's say, of Dr. Cosby. And he helped us recognize a lot of blind spots that we had in our attempt to be allies to the black community. He has taught us, and I miss that table. We'll talk more about that table, but it was a rich time, and and Dr. Cosby was spot on in helping us uh, move a little further in our efforts uh, toward racial reconciliation. So you were sort of stepping back into a conversation that you had been an active part of several years ago, and probably back into a conversation that the two of those guys had been continuing in the years since. For six years, that group has been meeting together um, almost weekly. So that's a lot of time around the table together. And I asked Dr. Cosby why he would be willing to invest that kind of time. And, and you'll be interested in his answer. Great. Great. Anything else we need to know before we head into the interview? Um, no, they're, they're going to talk about um, Dr. Cosby's book launch, um, which is a local event in Louisville, Kentucky at uh, Reverend Crosby's church at Crescent Hill Baptist, but they'll be live streaming it. And so pay attention to that because that's something, and we'll put it in the session notes as well. Uh, they invited us to participate um, online in the, in the book launch. It'll be a great, a rich conversation, I'm sure. Great. Well, I guess then we'll roll the interview. Let's do it. Well, today on the pod, we have two very special guests, special to my heart, two dear friends of mine. One is Dr. Kevin Cosby. The other is Reverend Jason Crosby. And these are friends of mine from my time in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, Dr. Kevin Cosby is the president of Simmons College of Kentucky in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, Simmons College is one of our nation's 101 historically black colleges and universities. Dr. Cosby also serves as a senior pastor of St. Stephen Baptist Church, which is the largest African-American congregation in Kentucky. He's been in that role since 1979. That's a nice long tenure. With his D-Men from United Theological Seminary, Dr. Cosby is currently pursuing a Ph.D. at Union Institute and University in Cincinnati, Ohio. Dr. Cosby and his wife, Barnetta, are the parents of two adult children. Now, Reverend Jason Crosby, I guess they're brothers from another mother. Cosby and Crosby. Jason Crosby is a pastor at Crescent Hill Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, where he has been serving since 2008. Jason is responsible for preaching, pastoral care, and administration. That sounds about right. A native Kentuckian, Reverend Crosby earned his Master of Divinity degree at Vanderbilt University Divinity School. Along the way, Reverend Crosby has served as an interim minister, a community organizer, and as a project coordinator with Kentucky Refugee Ministries. Reverend Crosby and his wife, Kate, are the parents of children Brooks and Millie Lou and one very lucky dog named Pippa. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Crosby and Dr. 
I'm going to do this all pod, I can tell. Dr. Cosby and Reverend Crosby, uh, would you guys add anything to the introduction I offered? Dr. Cosby is also a founder, a founding member of Empower West Louisville. Uh, so, you know, that's an important thing to put on the resume. Um, but one thing that, that just occurred, you mentioned that, that Dr. Cosby started uh, serving at St. Stephen in 1979, which is uh, hard for, for me as a fellow pastor to believe. Uh, mm-hmm. But just a couple weeks ago, he celebrated his 42nd anniversary. Um, mm. What was that? Mid, Mid-October, I guess. Yeah, yeah mid-October. Uh, yeah. And, and one thing that I really appreciated that St. That Stephen did uh, was they, they yoked together um, uh, another famous number 42. That was Jackie Robinson, who wore oh. that number. And so just as Jackie Robinson wore number 42 and was a trailblazer at St. Stephen uh, for Dr. Cosby's 42nd year, they recognized the ways in which he's blazed so many trails. Oh, that's so, that's great. Yeah, congratulations, Dr. Cosby. Thank Cosmo. you so much, Rod, and thank you uh, so much, uh, Jason, for those kind words. And um, Rhonda, you was a part of Empire West in its inception, and it was, and, and, and still is, a unique model of racial collaboration, interdenominational collaboration to address issues of, of justice, especially as it relates to Black Americans. Yeah. And uh, you were a very important part of, of its uh, inception and formation, and uh, it's still growing strong. I told you uh, earlier before we started uh, our conversation how emotionally affected I was by your, by your departure from Louisville. Well, and, that, uh, that means a lot. And, um, and maybe, maybe just to get us started, I, I could tell a little bit about what Empower West is, and you guys can fill in the gaps. Um, So in 2015, I became the executive coordinator of CBF Kentucky, uh, which is headquartered in Louisville. And one day I was invited to a gathering of clergy with you, Dr. Cosby, at Simmons College of Kentucky, the HBCU where you serve as president. And what I would discover is that you were hosting this group of white clergy on your campus on a weekly basis. Um, You were extending hospitality for sure, but more than that, you were teaching us, this group of white clergy, how we could be better allies to the black community and and more. And I'll let you guys tell the more part. Those meetings were held weekly. And then I just want to say that my two years around that table was some of the most important education that I've ever received. And I'm deeply grateful for that. I moved away in 2017, but that group, you're still meeting weekly. Um, And it's been, what, six years? Is that right? About six years you've been meeting around that table every week. So, Dr. Cosby, my first question is, uh, this group that you call Empower West that meets around this table, you're a busy man, and that's a significant investment of time and energy. What makes it worth it for you, Dr. Cosby? What about that meeting is worth it for you? Well, I would say two things. First of all, the very name uh, captures my passion and concern. It's called Empower West because the West part of the city of Louisville is highly concentrated with 
uh, black, the black poor. So, um, for example, in the community where I serve, St. Stephen's Church, Baptist Church, which is a in the western part of the city, the median income is uh, about twelve thousand dollars annually. So, it is um, it's it's one of the poorest areas in America. Mm-hmm. So these communities need to be the, the neighborhoods that is in the western part of the city needs to be empowered. So the very name of empowering these people is something that is of is it's a priority with me. It's my passion. Um, and then in addition to that, Empower West, which is predominantly you, you have blacks in Empower West, but it's predominantly white clergy, and seeing white clergy engaged in empowering or doing what they can to empower the black community uh, gives me hope. What I guess one of the reasons why uh, I was so hurt when you left Louisville was because when we gathered around that table for the very first time, that represented the first white friends hmm. that I had in my entire adult life. Wow. And let me say that again. I started pastoring St. Stephen Church when I was, I wasn't technically 21 yet. I was still 20. <laughs> so I've been there for 42 years. So I'm, you know, I'm telling my age, I'm 62. <laughs> Being in a black church, living in the black community, uh, serving black people, being a part of a black Baptist denomination, my circumstances never put me in contact with whites. Yeah. Never. Because I was completely in black space in terms of where I lived, where I worked. Simmons is an HBCU. St. Stephen's is a black church in terms of its uh, composition. And uh, so I never came in contact with whites. The very first time I came in contact with whites and said, you know, what? I got a white friend was that was with Empire West. Hmm. And um, to, to see us all grow as a result of reading some very provocative political thinkers like yeah. uh, the first book we ever read, I don't know if you remember it, but the very first book we studied was Stokely Carmichael and Black Power. <laughs> so it's only fitting we would study Black Power since we're talking about Empower West. So we discovered what Black Power was. And I think it shifted a whole lot of people's paradigm about race relations. And yeah. we've been growing ever since. I think some of the preeminent thought leaders in the, in the world have uh, come to Louisville as a result and spoken as a result of Empire West. Mm. So, yeah. I think when you recommended that as the first book, um, was that a test, Dr. Cosby? Were you testing these white people you didn't know real well? Are you really going to engage this serious dialogue? Well, not really. I mean, no, I, okay. to, no to me, what's interesting, you know, Joe Phelps was a part of Empire West and a very brilliant uh, clergyman, pastor, and a great friend. Um, he he said to me that 
he had always been taught that uh, um, Stokely Carmichael was a rabble rouser mm-hmm. and um, that uh, he was not for quote unquote reconciliation and these type of things. And in a sense, he was, he, he was not. And that Martha King was the more reasonable of, of black leaders of the two. Uh-huh. But after reading Stokely Carmichael, he said, oh my God, it, he makes sense. And and he makes sense, especially if you studied Martin Luther King uh, from 1966 into his assassination in 1968. He, Martin Luther King gravitated more towards Stokely Carmichael and Malcolm X. Yeah. So Martin was talking about empowerment. You know, his whole, his last book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos Our Community. He was talking about a radical redistribution of wealth and resources. Uh-huh. Uh, so I was, you know, I, I've always be, been a believer in, 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 in empowering people and giving people the resources to be self-determining. And uh, I thought that was a good book to start with. And we read that book and we kept on studying and kept on reading and kept on growing. And, and we've been doing it ever since, Robin. Yeah. Uh, and it, it really is a powerful conversation that that continues in in Louisville. Um, Thanks to you, Dr. Cosby. It it was your initiative that made it happen. Well, talking about good books, Stokely Carmichael, Martin Luther King, Kevin W. Cosby has this new book out called Getting to the Promised Land, uh, Black America and the Unfinished Work of the Civil Rights Movement. So congratulations on your new book, Dr. Cosby. Um, Do you have a passage uh, from that book that you'd be willing to share with us? Sure. Um, Let me see. Uh, On page 60, I talk about how television in the late, in the early 70s, gave the impression that we had moved towards post-racial America. Mm. And uh, this is what I say on page 60. To, to gain a sense of America's desire to gloss and disguise the terrible reality that it created for our group, that's, that's Black America, we need only consider three popular television programs appearing between 1970 and 1990 that depicted ADOS life. That's another name for Black life. ADOS is American Descendants of Slavery. The first is Good Times, which aired between 1974 and 1979. Good Times was the first two-parent Adolf sitcom to ever be broadcast in America. And it realistically dramatized the myriad struggles that an Adolf family would would have been facing at the time. As a sitcom about Adolf's life, Good Times was usually, was an unusual in that it did reflect the contemporary economic reality of many of our people, as we will see, subsequent sitcoms appeared to elide that dimension of our group's experience. Mm-hmm. So then I go on to talk about that the next sitcom, so the, the Evans are good times, was centered black people in in poverty, in mm-hmm. housing projects, which represents where most black people are. But then they had another sitcom called The Jeffersons, and The Jeffersons moved on up to the east side. So that television program gave people the impression, well, black people are doing well. They've moved on up. No more segregation, no more restrictions, uh, no more racism. We're post-racial. Look, the Jeffersons are in our community. 
uh, we've got inter- integrated neighborhoods. And so whites began to feel like, you know, we don't have to address, or the country felt like we don't have to address black issues. But then we went a step further. We went from the Jeffersons, I mean, from the Evans to the Jeffersons, and then we went to the Cosbys and Bill Cosby. And that's when white folks started believing, and America started believing, not only have black people caught up, but black people have surpassed white America. I mean, look Mm. at the Huxtables. So then whites became the new victims in America. Mm. Uh, January 6th is really the protest of victimized white America. Who've lost their place because blacks have demanded justice and other groups have demanded justice. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. I, I haven't quite finished it, your book, but I love how you've uh, woven the story of Nehemiah and the return post post exilic return to Jerusalem and the rebuilding. And, and it's, it, you kind of weave that all the way through. Um, mm-hmm. It's a beautiful uh, study of, of that, of the experience, um, mm-hmm. comparing the struggle of Black America to the struggle of Israel returning back to Jerusalem. Would you say mm-hmm. just a, a little something about that? Yes, when I was in seminary, um, most of my Old Testament professors were very critical of Ezra and Nehemiah. I think that's because they were looking through the lens of power. Mm. Uh, and they were saying that it was, you know, basically it's an impediment to to reconciliation, racial solidarity, uh, because Nehemiah and Ezra is very nationalistic. But from a black perspective, I understand where Nehemiah was, namely that preserving your group uh, amidst uh, a dominant culture and being able to maintain cultural distinctiveness and group identity in the midst of a larger world, a larger culture that seeks often to impose alien culture upon you. Where Nehemiah was saying that we have the right to preserve our culture and our interests. That's basically what he was saying. And I, I totally agree with that, that to be Christian, to be baptized in the blood of Christ, that the blood of Christ is is like Clorox to its color safe, that my blackness is not bleached out in the baptism. And I think that's what Nehemiah is saying. And I think that's the major theme of Paul. I have some problems with Brother Paul on so many issues. But one thing I do think that Paul gets right, and that is Paul respects culture. So a person does not have to become, as a black person, I do not have to become an Afro-Saxon in order to be Christian. I do not have to become white. I can be authentically black, or you can be authentically uh, Latino or Latinx, or authentically Asian or authentically Caribbean or African. One of the sins of white supremacy or how white supremacy often manifests itself, it manifests itself in two ways. Number one, through white normativity, that white norms become the standard for excellence. And the universality or the the supposed universality of white norms, which is to say that everyone is expected around the world 
to adjust to white normativity. And I think that's that's heresy and it's 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 anti Pauline. Mm-hmm. With well, as you're reading, you used the acronym ADOS, American Descendants of Slavery. And since I was around the table, well, let me put it this way. When I was around the table, we weren't using that acronym. Um, I yeah. don't know that that had been coined yet, perhaps. No, it probably has not. Um, so say more about what ADOS is and why it matters. Back when Dr. King, and I call it the, um, the book is called The Unfinished Work of the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, it's subtitled that. When Dr. King was here, for the most part, there were just two racial groups in the United States, and that's black and white. With the 1965 um, uh, immigration law, groups that had historically been shut out of the United States made entry into the United States. So you have you have Latinx, you have the West Africans, you have Caribbeans, you have quote unquote black, black and brown or BIPOC. And that's wonderful, except those who built the country and who were forced against their will to come to the country in 1619, whose free labor built America, there is a justice debt that is owed this particular group. Now, there's no way of disaggregating blackness if you simply look at blackness, because if you look at a black person, then you and that person is from West Africa, they have my same color, but they don't have my same lineage. They don't have my same experience. Right. And what the country is doing is they are aggregating blackness. And usually those who come to the country from West Africa or from the Caribbean, or many of the times these are the professionals in these particular countries. Mm-hmm. And when you bring us all together simply with blackness, then what happens is, is it, it gives a false reading of how well black people are doing. So let's say, for example, a university says, well, look, we have 13% of our, our population is black. Well, I want you to disaggregate blackness and I want you to answer to me, how many of these blacks are foundational blacks or how many of the blacks in that 13% are blacks that can trace their lineage back through Jim Crow, Jane Crow, pre-1965, all the way back to slavery. And if you disaggregate that, that may mean that the black, the 13% black might morph down to two to 3% black. Right. Yeah. So I'm concerned with those blacks who can trace their lineage back to slavery because those are the blacks that are stuck at the bottom right? because of the absence of repair. So ADOS to me is about three words. The first word is identification. Who are we? Blackness to me is identification, lineage. If I can trace my lineage back to enslaved people, then I am a unique group. Secondly is identification concentration. Do we have politicians, black organizations, who are truly advocating for black issues and black concerns? And the third 
word is reparations, identifications, concentration, reparations, which means how do we close the racial wealth gap that exists between blacks and whites due to systemic injustice, historical injustice that has excluded black people from acquiring wealth? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. And I, I never really considered that distinction before sitting at your table. You know who, who, who I think has it right in terms of disaggregation? It's no different than LGBTQI+. Yeah. Okay, what, what, 25, 30 years ago, it was either homosexual or gay. But then they said, we have to disaggregate gayness because all gays are not alike. Right. So just like they disaggregated, that's why you have these different letters, you know, that a, a lesbian is not a bisexual. A trans is not a, a curious person. Mm-hmm. So uh, they disaggregated it. And I think that uh, that's what the black community must do, because I believe this country owes a particular debt to blacks who can trace their lineage back to slavery. Right. Well, Jason, let me ask you a few questions, kind of shifting the conversation a little bit. I I don't know who our listeners are on the pod, but my guess is it's mostly white pastors. And so as a white pastor in Louisville who has sat at table with Dr. Cosby, what has been your greatest learning? What's been your biggest takeaway during the six years you've been at that table at Simmons College? Uh, where to begin? Um, and, and hopefully, Rhonda, uh, while I suspect that your suspicion regarding your audience is accurate, maybe we'll be able to expand or uh, add, add a little color to, um, to the yes. listenership moving ahead. Um, Rhonda, a few things. You know, at the, t- at the top of the list um, is the ways in which uh, white institutions have written the history of the United States and the ways in which um, that history as it is understood uh, continues to uh, oppress and suppress principally descendants of slave, ADOS individuals. And I would add to that, especially given um, the the nature of this audience, the, the ways in which the white church and white theology have played such a big role in creating a culture, not just within the church, but beyond the church as well, uh, that, that has per- perpetuated the, the institution of slavery, you know, the, the backlash that occurred during the era of Reconstruction, the, the theological underpinnings to, to Jim Crow laws, the theological underpinnings to this day when it comes to uh, mass incarceration and the ways in which certain drugs are criminalized and the way in which policing occurs. There are theological foundational pieces underneath all of these public policy uh, policies that have been implemented that I was unaware of, to be quite honest, before we began this, this journey. You know, one of, the, one of the early things we learned, you know, we, we, my church is half a block from uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And certainly I had some familiarity with the history of, of that seminary and the Southern Baptist Convention. One thing that was impressed upon me by Dr. Cosby from the jump was that, you know, the Civil War didn't start until, what, 1962, 
Well, it, it was a decade and a half before that when um, there was a religious civil war that occurred when Baptists in the South went ahead and split from Baptists in the North uh, using theological justification. Um, and that's 1862, Jason. 18, 1862. Sorry, I'm sorry. Did I say 1962? Well, it, it was still, the same issues were still happening in 1962. Same issue. That's right. You said 1962, right. <laughs> um, but, for instance, uh, that, that's just one example of the ways in which, you know, theology kind of, white theology laid groundwork um, for, for other uh, social problems that we have continued to deal with uh, over the course of the past, you know, getting close, it's getting close to 200 years now, which is yeah. hard to believe. With what you've learned at that table, and well, this is kind of a yes or no question, then I have a deeper question, but has your theology changed, Jason? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, certainly. Um, you know, Dr. Cosby not only talked about Nehemiah is kind of the backbone of that that book, but you know another theological shift that occurred is kind of rooted in another biblical story that we've talked a lot about around our table, and that's Zacchaeus. You know, we've talked about reparations and repair, but but I'd kind of missed the mark prior to being around the table and recognizing that this is not some sort of spiritualized tale. Uh, we, this is not just a, a, an act of piety. This is not just Zacchaeus repenting in, in spirit and, and expressing remorse for past wrongs. Zacchaeus then went forth and paid back significantly more than he had defrauded those from whom he was collecting taxes. And, and so that's, that's, that's one way in which my theology of repentance has changed. Repentance is not just uh, uh, an act of saying that one is sorry and then doing your your best to perhaps not make the same mistake again. Repentance entails a change of mind that then perpetuates and motivates a person to repair damage and then operate differently in the future moving ahead. Yeah, yeah. With your change in theology, uh, with your change in understanding, your growth and understanding um, how to be a better ally, how have you taken that back to your congregation? In what way has your congregation been with you on this journey? Well, one of the principal ways is, is through the opportunity to host the, the annual Empower West Book Club. Um, that has been an extraordinary event. Uh, let's see, we've, we've done it all six years, if I'm not Yeah, mistaken. I was a part of um, a couple of those, yeah. Uh, and and so around the table, one of the first books that we read was Stokely Carmichael's Black Power. But but then we, we, we've brought in authors of more contemporary books uh, addressing race in the United States. One of the first ones was The Half Has Never Been Told by Edward Baptist. We've had Richard Rothstein here, the author of The Color of Law, uh, Mersa Baratadan, who wrote The Color of Money. Robert P. Jones, um, the author of White Too Long, was was with us virtually during COVID. Dr. Cosby's book will be front and center uh, in early December at, at, at a book launch, and, and we're hosting that at our congregation. So that's been one way that yeah, Carol Anderson at, at Emory, yeah, yeah White that. Rage, right. Dr. Anderson, yeah, yeah. Uh, Erica Dunbar, Erica, Erica Dunbar, Dunbar as well. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's incredible, right? <laughs> and so your congregation likes, they like hosting this event. Um, have they grown? Have, have they been on a journey with their understanding and growth and oh, theological absolutely. transformation? Absolutely. And that event is kind of a foundational piece, right? That gives, that gives people something to do. Um, they feel like they're invested and involved. And so that's been a starting point. They're obviously reading the book and we're having discussions, not just the night of these annual large events, but, you know, there are small groups that are reading these books together and contemplating um, what the issues that are raised. But then in addition to that educational piece, one thing that folks at Crescent Hill have done is they have tried to live into the spirit of Empower West um, by supporting Simmons College of Kentucky. One of the principal engines that, that exists in our city, and I would say exists in any city where there's an HBCU, that can uplift and empower folks uh, in, in neighborhoods like West Louisville are HBCUs like Simmons. And so uh, we've had groups from our church um, uh, build relationship with Simmons students, support them financially, uh, uh, help them with some tutoring issues and meet some other needs for, for students that have been long-term relationship. Uh, we've certainly at various times sought to raise money for scholarships and other needs, just generally speaking, um, that, that Simmons has. Uh, so that's been another concrete and tangible way that members of the congregation have engaged. And then lastly, we got the education, we got the investment, and then there's an advocacy component. Mm. Uh, folks at Crescent Hill have, have also grown in terms of their willingness and desire to advocate, to be, to be present when it comes to issues that are negatively affecting uh, residents of, of West Louisville. You know, doc, Dr. Cosby, unfortunately, um, was, was pulled over for no good reason by uh, Louisville Metro Police several years ago. Uh, and, and needless to say, folks at Crescent Hill who uh, also have had chance to build relationship with him when, when uh, folks were, were kind of rallying around him, believe me, Crescent Hill folks were, were right there at the front. Um, and that's just one, one way in which um, the advocacy component has been a part of, of mm -hmm. uh, the water, the mix um, in, in our white church space. I love that. that that's so well, it's empowering, right? Isn't that the word? Um, to invest. And, and I will say that when we were talking, when I was around the table four years ago, and we started talking about reparations, the, the idea was so big and so seemingly impossible. I couldn't wrap my mind around how we could ever make a dent. Uh, but Dr. Cosby, you helped me see that one one way we can do that that's empowering for the black community is reparations by way of HBCUs right. uh, to, 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 you know, invest in scholarships and funding uh, mm -hmm. for HBCUs. And that, that's, you know, that could be one step towards a, a larger way we can do reparations. Um, well, Jason uh, or Dr. Cosby, either one, some of the, some of the white pastors around that table have, sought to lead their congregations in the way of these conversations and this transformation that some of us have had um, at your tutelage, Dr. Cosby, and they've met resistance from their congregations, uh, you know, a couple, a 
couple may not even be at the churches where they were serving, and that might have played a, 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 a small part, maybe even a larger part in there. Why is that? These are fairly moderate to progressive white, mostly white congregations. Why would there be resistance to the kind of conversation that you're having around that table? Well, um, Dr. Martin Luther King, if you read his letter from a Birmingham jail, he said that he had come to the conclusion that white moderates were worse than the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes white moderates become the left wing of white supremacy. So you've got a white wing, right wing, and you have the left wing. And anytime we want to maintain the status quo or the power imbalance, then you are participating in a white supremacist paradigm. Because fundamentally, when we think of racism and white supremacy, we think of racism as I'm loathing someone simply because of their skin color. Now, that's, that may be prejudice, but that's not what the heart of racism really is. The heart of racism and, and white supremacy is power, wealth, imbalance. It is the total maldistribution of wealth, power, and resources into the hands of the dominant white community to the exclusion of the black community. So it's a power dynamic. And it all really, it always has been. Blacks don't have, we don't have wealth. We don't have institutional strength and we're not supposed to have it. And it's not because there's a defect in blackness. It's because there's a defect in our democracy and our sense of justice. We don't want to talk about that. We don't want to talk about the historical roots of, of the, the wealth gap because to talk about it helps explode the myth of bootstrapism and uh, that American exceptionalism, these myths that we have. And it also, to talk about it means that we realize that the reason why black people are down is because of social engineering. For example, uh, my father, who just passed in 2014, well, he paid taxes, but the flagship university here in Louisville, which is the University of Louisville, when he graduated from high school, he could not attend the University of Louisville because he was black, or he couldn't live in certain communities because he was black. So he was deprived of opportunities, although he paid taxes and, and, and wealth. So therefore, when he passes off the scene, he's not going to be able to pass down to his kids what someone who had his, his white peers who had access and privilege were able to pass down to their kids. That's an injustice. And to even talk about the, this, this historical injustice generates this, you know, this uh, critical race theory phobia that we now are obsessed with in the country. And it's it's very unfortunate. When I was around your table for two years, I never hear, heard those three words put together. Critical yeah. race. Th what is what even is that critical race theory? <laughs> and it's old. You know, it's not like it's something new. I mean, critical race theory goes back with Derek Bell. You know, I mean, he, you know, he's considered to be the father of critical race theory. You know, basically, you know, if I could, you know, it's... It, what the critical race theorists are simply saying is that constitutionally speaking, black people have been excluded and that 
you can't put us all on the same level. You can't be post-racial. Now, they're really not post-racial. They're post-black. And there's a difference between being post-racial and post-black. In other words, we don't want to do with black issues anymore. And um, it's almost like if um, there's a boxing match and there's 12 rounds and it's the heavyweight championship of the world and one fighter whoops the other fighter and knocks him out in the first round. So he gets the bell. He's the heavyweight champion of the world. It's been, it's all fair. But then the critical boxing theorists look at the fight and say, no, wait a minute. One fighter weighed 225 pounds. The other fighter weighed 135 pounds. So the critical race theorist or the critical boxing theorist is going to say that that was not a fair fight because you're dealing with a, 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 a lesser weight person against a heavyweight person. Basically, that's what critical race theory is saying. Where America thinks there's always that we're this egalitarian country that everyone has equal opportunity and equal access to opportunity, that's a myth. Critical race theorists are saying, let me show you how. Let me give you, show you why black people are stuck at the bottom and what policies were in place to make that happen. Rhonda, uh, you all might know this name and, and perhaps some of your listeners. Uh, Dr. Glenn Henson, who uh, uh, is an expert in all fields that could possibly be taught in a seminary. <laughs> uh, shared with me that that when uh, the conservative takeover took over at Southern, um, he he came to me one day and he said, "Who who do you think? What what group of professors were the first to be dismissed?" And you know, knowing a little bit about what I know, I thought, well, you know, it must be the uh, the theologians, right? I mean, they they were the, the heretical theologians. He said, "No, try again." I thought, okay, well, it must be. Uh, the the Hebrew Bible or, or New Testament professors because uh, there's such a kerfuffle when it comes to biblical interpretation. He said, "No, try again." I was like, I, I, "I don't know the ethicists." No, he he said it's the historians. He said the church historians were the first to go because those that control historical narratives continue to control control present and future narratives. Mm. And I, I think that that you know one thing that, that's happening with CRT is it's just another way in which uh, folks who will do everything they can to defend white supremacy and the status quo as it has been are effectively creating a, a new boogeyman um, to frighten folks so that that people will not look at the the truth of of American history and the truth of of the the role of the white church um, in the construction of that history. Um, and, you know, to Kevin's point, I mean, really, I think one of the big challenges, back to your question, is is really what we've gotten to is we've gone beyond diversity, uh, inclusion, and equity. That In white space, one thing that, that I've learned from Dr. Cosby and others is that uh, whites would prefer to have D-I-E, D-E-I, diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, but whites still control the playing field, um, dictate, you know, how many 
people of color or black individuals are, are allowed in what is still predominantly white controlled space. But some of what we have been talking about in Empower West is challenging white churches to, to kind of rethink um, the, the concept of, of the ultimate goal being uh, the incorporation of black folks into white controlled space, shifting that dynamic and saying, oh, wait a second. We white folks need to be in places where in black space where we're ha- helping uplift um, black folks by by listening uh, and letting black individuals control the agenda and and take lead and and be the ones who are principally setting the pace and and so that's that's a real challenge even in white moderate and, and progressive churches because in those spaces the integration model. Um, has kind of, I think for most folks, been, been, been kind of the end game. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is uh, tweaking that and, and moving things in a different direction. And, and it requires some, some real hard internal work for white people, uh, especially progressive ones who thought, oh, integration, we're getting there. Um, there's just one problem. As Dr. Cosby said, it, while we're seeing, uh, you know, groups meet in black and white and people be friends, the money has not yet been integrated. The money hasn't been integrated. One of the most powerful mm-hmm. illustrations of supporting black business was when Dr. Chris Caldwell, who was at that time the pastor of Broadway Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, um, when his father passed and he's, you know, Chris is pastoring this predominantly white congregation, uh, Dr. Caldwell, having been at the table with us and learning that supporting black business is one of the best ways we can be allies, instead of hiring the the local funeral home that always did all the funerals, he went to West Louisville and hired the black-owned funeral home to take care of his father's funeral arrangements. And that was a real statement, and it was a powerful statement for me, and I think others in the in the congregation as well. Well, let me ask kind of a, a, a couple of closing questions here. What would you say are the most important steps that white pastors can take to be better allies and to, you know, move towards greater reconciliation, racial reconciliation? What are some first steps, Rhonda? Yeah, I'm yeah. Sorry. yeah, I think first steps, yeah. I think one of the first steps is is proper education. I think, uh, you know, uh, is one that has had the, the luxury of attending some, some schools uh, of of good reputation. Um, I, I have gotten my best degree. Uh, I have conferred upon myself a PhD uh, from the University of Empower West at <laughs> Simmons College of Kentucky. Uh, part of it is is a re-education, even for those of us that may have had the luxury of um, having a, a high-quality theological training. I did, I did not have the opportunity to learn in those institutions, what I have been able to learn at Simmons and around the Empower West table, and just by listening, reading, and listening to uh, Dr. Cosby and other other Black leaders, uh, other Black pastors, other Black community leaders. So the the reeducation component, there are plenty of books out there right now, and and it is imperative that that pastors kind of get up to speed on the various dynamics and, and issues that are at play. So I think that's the first step. I'd say a second step is if you're lucky, and I, I tell folks this all the time, yeah, we do some heavy lifting and some serious work, but we have a lot of fun at Empower West. 
we like each other. Is is Kevin said? I mean, you know, we wouldn't be meeting every Monday for over six years at this point if we didn't in, genuinely enjoy one another's company. Um, oh shoot, Doctor Cosby, what was it? A few weeks ago, you said something funny. Oh, it cracked me up. Anyway, it'll come to me in a minute. But having those relationships and being able to get to really know each other um, and and share this commitment to, to following Jesus and to doing justice and then enjoying one another's company, I think that's been the secret sauce that that's kind of made this thing work. Uh, so if you can find that, wonderful. Um, but I do think we're really fortunate and blessed in Louisville that we found each other and, and just the relational dynamics, uh, the trust, the fun, as well as, is the, the Jesus justice work that's being done. Uh, just, just, uh, it has been one of the greatest blessings in, in my life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Would you add anything to that? Dr. Cosby? I would uh, say that he, I was going to uh, say exactly the same thing that it is critically important that you read books that can expand your vision and understanding of race. And also, it's not just head. It has to be heart as well. It's it's head, heart, and hands. And what I mean by heart is this, is that a, a black pastor told me, a very brilliant pastor in Louisville, Kentucky. You remember Bruce Williams, hmm, yes. Dr. Bruce Williams. He said to me that in his entire life, this was the first time he's been with whites in which whites did not mind listening and learning from blacks and, and, and when needed, taking a subordinate role to black people. That meant that, you know, whites came to the table, came to the space with humility and said, let us learn together. And you still have that same spirit in, in, uh, in Empower West. I, I, remembered, I remembered what it was. I got to tell this. This was just a few weeks ago. There's a marching band at Simmons. And when they're doing their thing, it's impossible to miss them doing their thing. They will make a, a loud and joyful noise unto the Lord. Well, um, apparently a few weeks ago, they marched down a street in, in West Louisville. And unfortunately, uh, that's a very unfamiliar sound in West Louisville, a joyful noise such as that. And it attracted a lot of attention, and, and uh, the band director shared with Kevin that's, that someone came out on their front porch and said, it's just so good to hear this, this joyful noise in this neighborhood where we hear gunshots, uh, where we hear windows breaking, where we hear tires screeching. Uh, this is just such a, a welcome sound. <laughs> and so Kevin shares that. Out of nowhere, he starts singing, Not the hills are alive, with the sound of music, mm-hmm. but the hood is alive. With the sound. <laughs> <laughs> that's what cracked me up. That's, that's the kind awesome. of that's what we need to do. <laughs> that's great. That's per- you have a way with words, Doctor Cosby. That's for sure. <laughs> well, um, let me get both of you to name your top two books. You're both talking about reading. Top two books you would recommend to white pastors. Oh, besides obviously getting to the Promised Land by Doctor Cosby. <laughs> Let me offer four. Okay. <laughs> Black Power, Stoker Carmichael. Okay. Where do we go from here? Martin Luther King. Reparations by Darity, 
William Darity at Duke University. And The Color of Money by Mercer Baderin. Baderin. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. <laughs> Those four I would highly recommend. And also, also The Half Has Never Been Told. Jason mentioned that by um, Edward Baptist. Um, I think especially for white pastors, uh, it is contemporary. It is very well researched, um, provides historical content, uh, theological analysis, and then brings that together with current data that this sociologist slash historian uh, is doing. And that's uh, Robert P. Jones and yeah. White Too Long, especially for white pastors. Um I think that that, that is uh, a, almost a, a must-read. And uh, then I would also uh, highly recommend one of the other books that, that we've had the author in. Uh, it, it's, it's, if you want to see the ways in which financial institutions, local, state, federal government, churches, uh, all collaborated to ensure that black individuals could not amass wealth as white individuals did principally through home ownership in the middle of the 20th century, then The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein is, is I, I think, just terribly well done. And it shows the ways in which uh, restrictive covenants were put in place, the ways in which it wasn't just local neighborhoods, but the Federal Reserve and banks uh, collaborated with one another to withhold loans from black individuals, uh, the ways in which um, cities were redlined like, like Louisville. So uh, White Too Long by Robert P. Jones, The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. I would also say one thing that, that I've really appreciated, and it's a different type of writing, but anything by James Baldwin. Mm-hmm. I, I, have, I have just mm-hmm. so enjoyed the way in which he is able to poetically uh, dissect in a prophetic way. He's both a, a prophet and a poet. Um, so James Baldwin. <clears throat> Very good. Well, tell me more about your book launch. Will that be live streamed? Can I watch it from my perch in Florida? Uh, tell me more about how and when I can be a part of that. Uh, yes, Rhonda, you were asking, will it be live streamed? And the answer is, uh, it will be. Uh, if you're in Louisville or in the vicinity, I hope that you will join us uh, at Crescent Hill Baptist on Thursday evening, December the 2nd at 7 o'clock. Thursday evening, December 2nd, 7 o'clock. But it will uh, also be live streamed. So Rhonda, you can join us uh, from, uh, from, from the, the beaches of Florida. If you want, you can, you can have the white sandy beaches under your feet as you're <laughs> joining us for the book launch uh, December 2nd. Where can I find that online? There will be a link made available at the Crescent Hill Baptist Church website, uh, as well as on Twitter and Facebook. But if you go to www.chbcky.org, uh, you can find the live stream there. Okay, fantastic. Well, I think that that about does it. Um, I, I could talk to you guys forever, and I sure do miss being at the table with, with both of you uh, and learning from both of you. Uh, Dr. Cosby, Reverend Crosby, thank you so much for being on the pod today. Thank you, Rhonda. Good to see you.